We are in Surah Al-Ahzab, Surah number 33, Ayah 38. If you have the Muhammad uh, Zakir's translation, page 706. <laughs> سنة الله في الذين خلوا من قبل وكان أمر الله قدرا مخدوعا الذين يبلغون رسالات الله ويخشونه ولا يخشون أحدا إلا الله وكفى بالله حسيبا And one of the major themes of the surah is to inform the ummah of the Prophet ﷺ's status, his mission, and uh, to show Muslims that uh, they cannot go against the Prophet ﷺ in any matter or affair that pertains, relates to their akhirah and their salvation and their success, and that hurting the Prophet ﷺ is not an option for believers as that would drive them away from Allah's rahmah and mercy. Here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as I said, employed the institution and the ministry of the Prophet ﷺ to improve the point. The point, as I discussed and we heard last week, that the divorced wife of an adopted son is not a legal wife. And uh, the wife who is divorced does not become a mahram for the father who is a legal guardian. Therefore, marriage with that person is allowed in Islam, even though people may look down upon it as taboo. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala proves that the Nabi is not only going to do what is good for him, he's going to do what's good for everybody. So he didn't want to marry this person, but then he did. Through the instruction of Allah, it's a divine order that he wanted this. So Allah then says that it is not inappropriate, there is no constraint for a Nabi in doing what Allah has allowed him to do. Here the word farda doesn't mean necessarily ordained as an obligation, but sanctioned, meaning allowed. So when Allah allows uh, a Nabi to do something, People should not think or believe that uh, it is wrong. When Allah allows something as halal, there is benefit in that, there is khair in it, even though you may not see it and you may not understand it at that time. So for the believing male and the believing female, for them it is better to acquiesce and say, this is what Allah wants. And this is what we must concede and not fight internally, mentally, culturally in society and say, we don't believe in this anymore. So it's not contextual. What Allah ordains, meaning when Allah makes something halal, it is not contextual to the society. And you will see this in one of the ayat, inshallah, if you get there today that the role of a Nabi, especially when he is the last Nabi, is not going to be limited to the tribal customs of Arabia at that time. Very necessary for us to believe. Believe it. Not understand it. Believe it. 
So, if there was a custom that the Quran repealed, rescinded, uprooted, reformed, or amended, then that is the role of a Nabi. A Nabi is there to show you what is halal and what is haram. A Nabi is not there to say that in this context, in your society, you don't like it, therefore I don't like it either. He's not there, he's not there to appease the masses simply because he feels that he may lose them. It's not a PR thing for the Prophet, as you see here, right in this area. This has been the norm of Allah in those who came before you, who came before him. Meaning previous prophets also went through this exercise of uh, legislating that which is halal. Even though it may have been odd. Uh, at that time, in the eyes of the people around them. So the, the, the halal-haram issue is not contextual or subject to the approval of people, because the approval of people, it is inconsistent in sometimes with the truth and reality. People may get things wrong. So it's inconclusive. So when you go to a legislative body and they have a suggestion, a proposal, and then the state legislates it through a bill and they pass the law, okay, that law may be contextual in today's society because usually it's based on utility, the benefit and the risk and the harm discussion. It may change in 20 years. The speeding limit was what, 70? Sometime back, now because of a certain contingency in the oil market, it became 55. Oh. And you never know, with no oil oh. and electric cars, you may go back to 100 or whatever. That's contextual legislation. And that, this is a very simple example of how legislation changes according to the context and that is allowed in Islam as long as it remains inconclusive in its uh, understanding that this is the truth or this is falsehood. So there is not a question of truth or falsehood with legislation. It's a question of whether the policy works, whether it's effective or ineffective. In what is halal and haram, it has to be conclusive. Because halal means Allah allows it. And haram means Allah allows it. It has to be conclusive. It becomes part of your aqeedah. We say pork is haram because Allah says so. Not because there is harm in pork. That's a secondary debate. Not a primary debate. Right? We say marriage is halal in Islam because Allah allows it. Not because it's useful. Right? Or there is utility in marriage and procreation. Modern-day society is at the heck with marriage. We can procreate without marriage. In fact, we can procreate without couples. So the utility discussion in what's halal and haram is futile because it's not based on what's conclusively good or evil. It's based on wahi. Wahi comes from Allah. So when Allah says this is halal, it means it is halal for the end of time. And during the end of time, because it's halal period. When Allah says this haram, is the question of that in your akhidah you say it's haram. In your world view it is haram. Now, if you say that we can now raise pigs in such a way that will be the most hygienic thing, object on the planet, we'll say it's still haram. Because we never base the legislation on what? whether it was good or bad or useful or not so useful or hygienic or inhygienic. That was not the reason why we say it's haram. We say it's haram because Allah says so. How do we know it's haram? Because the Prophet says Because the Quran says so. So in our understanding of what is conclusive and inconclusive, we must differentiate in our minds 
between what Allah says and the Prophet says and what uh, the society says and what uh, politicians and senators and congressmen and the Congress say. Very different. What uh, you can say is that anything that is not mentioned in terms of being halal or haram, they, that issue may be debated, like policy issues, the speed limit, and this and that, and how to run your hospital, and how to run your business, and your taxations, and whatever. Because they have not been discussed the way these issues have been discussed. So Allah subhanahu wa says that the divorced wife of an adopted son is halal for the legal guardian to marry because there's no blood relationship and uh, Allah used the Prophet to demonstrate this and there should be no blemish on the Prophet for doing this even though he himself didn't want to do it. In that, it is a, it's an ethical discussion for the mindset of the Muslim community that whatever the Prophet did as an instruction from God through Wahi must be seen with the eyes of submission and consent, not from the eyes of scorn and derision and suspect. You can't do that just because you're here. Otherwise, it becomes an issue of your iman and your faith in Allah subhanahu wa You may not understand it, which is fine. But then you're not obligated to understand it. You're not God. And you're definitely not the Prophet. Allah Allah's command is always going to be done. It's always destined, it's always decreed, and that's the way Allah subhanahu works. But He won't use everybody for His will to be done. He will only use the Nabi. The one who has the staying power, the stamina, the consistency, the sincerity, the devotion, the dedication, and the patience to do what Allah wants him to do. He will not use other people. He will only use one person. And that is Nabi. Who are those people whom he uses to execute his command? Those who promote and convey his messages. The messages of Allah. on those who fear Him and care about Him. And those who don't fear nor care for anyone besides Allah. As I said, you need to be devoted. You need a lot of staying power. You need stamina. You need resilience. You need resolution. You need to be conforming with Allah's will all the time. And there's only a group of people who can do that. There's, who are they? They're the prophets. Then prophets will not be able to do this because they won't have that level of dedication, sincerity, and integrity. That's why these ayat appeal to us to show the merit and honor that Allah has given to all the prophets in the Quran. They do not commit sin. Going against the command of Allah is a sin. Right? And since they are infallible, meaning prophets, <coughs> in our belief, we say they are the chosen ones. But it's not easy to be the chosen one. Right? Some people say, no, they have it good, they don't sin. It's very difficult not to sin. Can you imagine that? That you know that if you do this, everybody in the world will be against you. But you still have to do it. You don't have that stomach. You run away. You resign from being a Nabi. I've had enough. So Nabi is there forever. Not just until he leaves the world. Nabi is there forever. In his grave on the day of judgment in Jannah. He remains a Nabi. Doesn't change. Because that staying power, which is almost uh, eternal, almost eternal, is there only with a Nabi. So only a Nabi can handle the execution of Allah's messages. No other human being is able to execute the way a Nabi does. And that is how we say we follow a Nabi. We do not follow a non-Nabi. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is now more than enough as a judge. And someone who is going to reckon with us 
and so on, who's going to qualify our actions and reward us for what we do. And he has the prerogative to do whatever he wants uh, with us. He is a Hasib. Allah subhanahu wa takes account and a Hisab of everything that we do. He is our auditor. And Allah is enough for that. Meaning that the, the, the reassurance for the Nabi here is that people will say what they want to say, meaning the Quraysh. And maybe some Muslims also felt this way, initially. But Allah is enough for you. Allah is enough for you because your action will be until the day of judgment. Nobody will be able to repeal this act of yours because it must, it's not going to go through the process of legislation. It is an act which is based on aqidah, that it is halal period until the day of judgment. And that is the meaning of Khatamun Nabiyyin, the seal of all prophets, which is the next ayah. So here we see that in, in the Quran there are only four places where the name Muhammad is used. Only four places. The Quran is revealed to Muhammad that Allah uses his name Mubarak in four places. Not in every ayah. In certain ayat, he will just say, Qul, declare, speak, say. In another ayah, he will say, Ya Yuhan Nabi, O Nabi. In another ayah, which is the beginning of the surah. In another ayah, he will say, Ya Yuhan Rasul. In another ayah, he will speak to him, Innaka, indeed you are. But there's only four places in the Quran where the name Muhammad appears. This surah is one of them. And the reason for that are many, which we do not have time to get into. But you will see, as, as we explain this ayah, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses the name of his Habib very sparingly to show adab for him. Right? It's out of adab. Out of divine adab and respect and honor for the Nabi, he doesn't use his name that often. And when he does, is not an immediate address to him. It's about him. So when he addresses the Prophet he says, Ya Yuhan Nabi, Ya Yuhan Rasul. He doesn't say, Ya Muhammad. Adaban. There are two reasons why you call somebody by name. One is that that's his name. And the other is out of honor, respect and love for him or her. But there's a reason why you don't say their name also. It is what? Out of adab and out of respect and honor and love for that person. Right? If you have a teacher, his name is Ibrahim. You say, Oh, Ibrahim, what's the answer to this? You say, Ya Ustad, Ya Sheikh. Right? Oh, my teacher, that's what you say, out of adab. Because the higher the rank, the less informal you should become. You're addressing somebody informally by the name. So the name is informal. So you don't use informal speech with people who are now supposed to be at a level of formality. That's why you don't mention your father and your mother's name when you talk to them. That is not in our civilization. It's in other civilizations where they don't see it to be taboo or wrong. But in the Muslim civilization, it is unheard of that if your name is Adam or Aisha, you call your mother, Adam, come here. Or Aisha, come here. That is disrespectful as a civilizational code, not because it's haram, that's not the adab. You don't do that. There's a formality between you and your parents, or there should be a formality between you. There's a separation. They gave birth to you. In the very least, show the adab. Respect. They say, oh, that's all nonsense. That's not nonsense. It is the pristine adab and etiquettes of a civilized civilization that you don't talk to your parents the way you talk to each other and the way you talk to your neighbors and the way you talk to your friends. 
You don't address them that way. You can't. And some people may say it's makruh. Others might even say it's sinful. We may not go that far, but whatever it is, it is against the civilizational code of the Muslim Ummah that you address your parents by their names. And we take the lead of Allah where he doesn't address his Habib, his Nabi, by saying, Oh Muhammad. Right, so is Ya Rasulullah. When we go to his grave, Mubarak, what do we say? Salatu Salaam alayka Ya Muhammad. Do we say that? When we go to the grave in Medina, what do we say? Salatu Salaam alayka Ya Rasulullah. It's all incorporated. Meaning, uh, Adab came from Allah. Not just from our imagination and speculation and our culture or whatever we say we came from. We came down from Allah. Allah, when He addresses His Habib in the Quran, He says, Ya Ayyuhun Nabi. Ya Ayyuhun Rasul. Alam nashrah laka sadaqa. Ya Muhammad, qad sharahna laka sadaqa. He didn't say that. He keeps Muhammad very, very formal. I mean, if Allah doesn't want to hurt the Nabi in his address, why is the Ummah hurting the Nabi in their address to him? So anyway, there's a footnote to one of the reasons why Muhammad Sallallahu name is not mentioned in the Quran except four places, is this. مَا كَانَ مُحَمَّدٌ أَبَا أَحَدٌ مِنْ رِجَالِكُمْ وَلَاكِرْ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ وَخَاطَبُ on the back of this incident and story where Zayd is not the son of the Rasul Allah brings upon it one of the most critical if not the most important aqidah of Islam. So the hukum in fiqh is based on this aqidah. What is that? That Muhammad is not a father of any of your men. He is not the father of any of your men. Did he give birth to a son? The son that he gave birth to Ibrahim. He died in his infancy. So Muhammad is no longer the father of any of your son. Meaning in his legacy, there is no son. Think about it. If the Rasul of Allah وسلم, did not have a son, and then in society, if you don't have a son, you mustn't take after He had four daughters. And because he had four daughters, what did he say? Anyone who raises four daughters is like me, and he will be forgiven. <laughs> see see how, how, how the, the honor comes into raising a family and you don't have these social hang-ups, taboos and stigma as many people unfortunately have. I don't have a son. So Allah says, مَا كَانَ مُحَمَّدٌ أَبَا حَادٍ مِنْ رِجَالِكُمْ Your Rasul didn't have a son that lived, survived. The one he had died, Ibrahim so don't so be don't be so so, so finicky yeah. and don't be so so brittle yeah, in, in in your societal outlook that I doesn't have a son. Never mind that Aisha didn't have any children. Did any of the wives have children besides Khadija? The wives of the Prophet didn't have any children. Did they? Other than Khadija. And Khadija had her children before Nabuwa, before Prophethood. So if somebody today doesn't have a child, say, oh, my marriage is doomed. How about your Nabi? He had several marriages where he didn't have children. Did they come and say to the Prophet, why don't you make God your close to Allah? Ask him, demand from him, order him to give us a child. Meaning, it's a gift from Allah. It's not a legal right for human beings to have children. It's not a right. 
It's a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we should see it this way, not the other way. Yeah. So the reason why Allah is, is one of the, the, the points or the benefits of saying that Muhammad is not the father of any of your men in society is that society should not see not having male children to be taboo. Because it was also a pagan custom that if you didn't, if you had a girl in some of them, in some of the tribes, they would bury their daughters alive. They were seen as taboo. Right. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave our Nabi, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, four girls to show the rest of the world it's okay to have four girls. You're blessed if you have any child, period. And if you have four girls, you're in the best company possible. So get over it. Get over it. You understand what I'm saying? Right? This is how we were. We were always like this. Until modernity came in, science came in, and human rights came in, and all of that. And then you had customs from wherever we came from. Many societies still suffer from this complex. If you have girls, then you're doomed. Or if you don't have children, you're doomed. This mindset that Allah subhanahu wa is curing through the Prophet the societal diseases and illnesses and malpractices so that he remains a Nabi. So, Muhammad is not the father of any of your men. Number one. Number two, what is he? وَلَاكِرْ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ But rather, he is the Rasul of Allah. He is the Messenger. So when you look at the Prophet you don't see him as a man, meaning a father, you see him as a Rasul. You see him as who? As a Rasul. What is his purpose? He is Rasul for you. So when people addressed him, they said, Ya Rasulullah. When you read the hadith, the Sahaba always use what? Ya Rasulullah. They didn't call him by name. Ya Muhammad. Ya Rasulullah. Meaning, Ya Rasulullah, what is the rule for this? Why do we do this? How do we do this? Ya Rasulullah. What is Ya Rasulullah? So the Sahaba incorporated the Adab into the understanding of who the Rasul is. That he is a messenger of Allah. He delivers Allah's messages to us. He is the Rasul of Allah. Now, whether that pertains to our governance, our politics, our economics, our society, our culture, our norms, our ibadat, our akhlaq, ethics and morals, our akhir, it doesn't matter. Everything is under the umbrella of being the Rasul of Allah. He is the Rasul of Allah, period. So we're not going to divide and compartmentalize what he says, what he doesn't say into these categories that are almost secular. And these are secular categories I just enumerated. In your politics, your economics, your society, your ibadat, your, your, your worship, and what have you, your military, and your being a good husband, or that. And that's all very, very partial. And you, you and I Dividing the, the the understanding of the Sahaba into small, small groups yeah. where it doesn't fit the bill of being the Rasulullah. So, when he said, in your domestic matters, you should do this, he wasn't saying that because he was a good husband. Right. He was saying that because he is Rasulullah. When he said that you must do this with your neighbors, he wasn't saying that because he was a good neighbor. He was saying that because he's a Rasul of Allah. When he said you must take care of your finances this way, he wasn't saying that because he knew everything about money. He was saying that because he's a Rasul of Allah. Understand the difference? One can be labeled as almost humanitarian, and the other cannot be labeled as humanitarian. It is now... Proof of his being a Rasul. So, if you had the genius to say that you should arrange and organize your governance and your politics this way, it wasn't because he was a brilliant statesman. It is because he is a Rasul of Allah. Don't separate the institution of his risala from his instructing you and prohibiting you. Everything he says and does is because he is Rasulullah. Period. And that is one of the other ayah 
where the name Muhammad is used. Which is that? Muhammad Rasulullah. How do you, as an ummah, identify Muhammad? Rasulullah. He is Rasulullah, period. So, in this secular frame of reference that we have inherited and developed and we have come to cherish and now the humanitarian approach to life that we are now also unfortunately uh, victims of, we want to say he was a great husband, he was a great neighbor, he was a great organizer, he was a great military person, he was a great statesman and so on. We say no. No. He is Rasulullah, period. Why? Because that's how the Quran defines him. Who is Muhammad? Rasulullah. Period. On the back of that, he made some ingenious, and all of his statements are ingenious. That's fine. But not at the expense of being Rasulullah. It is because he is Rasulullah, the messenger of Allah, that he made these statements. The statements. As opposed to a scientist, that when a scientist makes a statement, it is because he's a scientist. When a politician makes a statement, it's because he's a politician. When a military genius makes a statement, it's because he's a military genius. When an economist makes a statement, it's because he's a great economist. You see the difference? So the difference is that in your aqidah, in your outlook to who Rasul is, Muhammad is, he is a Rasulullah, so the Sahaba took this on upon themselves. Whenever they addressed the Prophet wasallam, they would say, Ya Rasulullah. So this I, uh, is proof that this is how the Sahaba saw uh, the person who is Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. He is the Rasul of Allah, and the seal of all prophets. The seal of all prophets, meaning in matters of receiving divine uh, inspiration and knowledge, and in matters of execution, ex, 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 the execution of the divine word and command, he is the Nabi. And he's the last. So no one after Rasulullah can claim that they receive instruction from God, from the divine directly or indirectly, and nor can they say that they have the prerogative to change what he has already ordained. There are two types. So some people say, well, I don't have Nabuwa, but I think I should change this for the betterment and for the improvement of Muslim societies and so on. Both doors are closed. The doors of uh, divine legislation and the doors of divine inspiration. Both doors are closed. You understand what I think? Meaning that if the Prophet left something halal, it remains halal. If the Prophet said, this is what's going to happen to you when you die and you go to your qabr, that is the truth. You cannot contest that because that's where Nabuwa stops. That's where divine inspiration and divine instruction stops with the Nabi and Abu Bakr anhu, when he took on his uh, first day, or before he took on the first day of school in the masjid, uh, he used another ayah in which Muhammad Salasan's name is used. And what is that? Wama Muhammadun illa Rasul. The third ayah. That Muhammad is nothing except a Rasul, meaning he is not here, we have no Risala left, we have no Nabuwa left. We have no divine instruction, nor do we have the divine prerogative to change what the Prophet ﷺ has left. He said, I'm not a Nabi. His declaration was that, I'm not a Nabi. Nor is anyone of you here a Nabi. Wahi has terminated, period. Wahi that has reference to knowledge, which is conclusive. And wahi, that has reference to changing law, both types of nabuwa and wahi have terminated. This is our khidah. Anyone who does not believe in this, doesn't believe in this eye, and therefore will not be 
a Muslim Majnun as it has been declared in the past century by all the ulama in the world, in the Ummah, that anyone who does not believe that the Prophet Sallallahu is Khatib al-Nabiyyin is not a Muslim. And that is uh, one of the most resounding forms of ijma' consensus of ulama that you will find in Muslim history post the Tabi'een time of the early scholars of Islam and so on. That is, it's an important issue. Now, what does this mean? Khatim al-Nabiyyin. Khatim al-Nabiyyin, what does that mean to us? Okay, the Aqidah is fine. We believe that only the Prophet ﷺ has prerogatives from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to inform us and to instruct us. But what does it mean for the Ummah? What it means for the Ummah is, وَكَانَ اللَّهُ بِكُلِّ شَيْنَ عَلِيمًا Allah is... Very much aware of everything. Allah knows everything. Allah knows everything. Meaning, whatever could be given as divine instruction has been given to the Prophet Whatever has been given in terms of what is halal and haram has been given to the Prophet What is left for the Ummah? The understanding of so the understanding of Nabuwa and divine instruction is still there. That is called the fiqh. How do we understand wahi? The Quran has been revealed and we have it here, mashallah, in the form of this Mus'haf book. How do we understand it? That is left in you. The pursuit of understanding wahi, that is still there. That can't stop. Otherwise, you won't have a Muslim civilization. Wahi has stopped. And the execution of Wahi through the Prophet has stopped. Nothing's going to change that. But the understanding of Wahi, that hasn't stopped. In the understanding of Wahi and Nabuwa, you will create a group of people that do what? This. Seek learn and then teach knowledge and then inform others about what they understand. That's the that. How do we understand that the Sahaba, when they heard this ayah from Abu Bakr, that, وَمَا مُحَمَّدٌ إِلَّا رَسُولٌ The Sahaba said, this ayah has always been there in the Quran, but when Abu Bakr recited this ayah that Muhammad is only a Nabi, a Rasul, and people before him also left this world, then it was as if we understood the ayah for the first time. It dawned upon us. The meaning of the ayah dawned upon us for the first time, even though the ayah was revealed to the Prophet even though the ayah is in the Quran, even though we have recited the ayah, the first time we understood this ayah is when Allah spoke it. So the understanding of Wahi is still there. And that's through generations, one generation after another, one generation. How do we understand the, the meaning of the Qur'an and the meaning of the Sunnah? It is through effort. So there are two levels. One is at the community level and one is at the individual level. So if you have an individual understanding, the community must be able to verify your understanding and agree with it. You can't be a rogue and say, this is my understanding. The community must appreciate your understanding. That's how societies work. Does it not? You have to prove your point. You have to defend your theory. What is this pursuit of a PhD? Everybody's in awe with the PhD issue. It is good. Academic standards and bars are very good. If you have a theory, or be it a scientific theory, or be it something that is another theory, then the way your, your, your mentors and the people who are going to be in front of you, when you defend your theory, they're going to be very rigorous. And they're going to challenge your theory and say, it doesn't make sense here. You want to make sure that everything is factual, the evidence is there. And after they've said, okay, you have defended your theory enough for us to say, you will be given and granted and blessed with a PhD degree. That's your individual theory. Right. 
You understand what I'm saying? Likewise, when you have an individual understanding of the Quran and Hadith and Sunnah, the community must verify it. If the community of scholars do not verify your theory, then it will not be accepted as a normative practice. Nor can we afford to do that. Which, by the way, is also in the Quran. The Quran says that those who follow the path other than the path of the believers, uh, they are not good people. And so Their fate is destined elsewhere. Right. So what we are saying here is that the Nabuwa uh, climatized and uh, culminated with the Prophet Wahi stopped with him, but the understanding of Wahi continues. It continued with Abu Bakr and the people around him. It continued with Umar and the people around him, with Uthman and the people around him, Ali and the people around him. And it continued with the scholars around all the Muslim community until today. So if there is an opinion which is based on the Quran and the Sunnah and someone brings it out, then the community must verify it. It's not a free for all. Excuse the expression of the That we have the prerogative to believe this about Islam because we are Muslim. That is unscientific, it is unacademic, it is self-professional, and it goes against every known theory of the civilization. I don't believe this term is, you know, what is the belief? Is there something you believe in? No, I don't care. Well, that's the nuts. So, means to us that the preservation of understanding Islam continues even today. The meaning of Islam, which is what we call here at Tarakat al-Makhul Islam, the Islamic concept, still survives because the community of scholars have preserved the meaning of the Quran just as we have preserved the letters of Wahid in the Quran and the letters of the words of Hadith, we have preserved the overall meaning of Islam, what is Islamic and what is not Islamic came down over a millennium, 14 centuries. That will not change. Why? Because it's conclusive. For instance, if somebody says, in my opinion, the issue of pork being haram is contextual to whether or not the pig is hygienic. What will the community say to that? Oh, this wonderful research. Is a, get the heck out of here. Right. Unless you can prove that it's there in the Quran. Again, it's not about utility. It's about whether you believe this to be part of the Islamic concept or not. Now, if you say that I believe that Muslims should use a pen in order to write, you say, well, that's fine. There's nothing that is Islamic or un-Islamic about the use of a pen. You understand? Yeah. Meaning that in today's society, if a group of Muslims, albeit well-intentioned, came to the table and said that we believe Muslims must legislate and legalize this, then the first order uh, will be what? Is, does the Quran and the Sunnah and the Ummah say something about this or not? If they already said something about it, then it's a closed matter. We're not going to reopen that for, for reinterpretation. If the, they haven't said anything about it, it's open. That's the difference in policy and fact. So in the Islamic legislation, there's fact and there's policy. In matters of policy, you may legislate because there's nothing there. In the first place, in matters of fact, not a theory. Fact. So if somebody says water doesn't boil at 100 degrees, but my theory is that water doesn't boil at 100 degrees. So we don't care about anything. Are you going to tolerate that? Because that's a scientific fact. 
I mean, given the settlement, I'm not saying that in space water does this uh, boil 100 years. We're not saying here on the ground, on Earth. Given the environment that you live in, water boils at 100 degrees. I would hope, right? You, you teach your children that. And sometimes you have variations because of whatever the environment or the pollution or whatever. That is still a scientific fact. If you want to say that we will no longer teach this because nobody wants to believe this anymore. You say, well, that's up to them. You, see. you can't change the fact because people like or dislike the fact. That is what Khatam and Nabiim is. You don't have any recourse to the divine will anymore. The divine will has already been revealed in the Quran, in the Sunnah. The Sahaba understood it and then they transmitted and it has come to us. We receive it the same way the Sahaba received it and that is the meaning of the Jama'ah, that we believe in the community. We as Muslims believe in the overall understanding of the community. We don't go solo on affairs that the community has resolved and agreed upon since the time of the Prophet Sallallahu and the Sahaba. We don't go against that because that we are Islamic. Well, they were men. They were, they were not just men. They were selected to be the company of the Prophet ﷺ. They have a high order and a high hierarchy, and they have a high rank than we ever will. And that is the discussion that comes with Khatam and Nabuwa. The finality of prophethood is the most central aqeedah in Islam. Okay? That the wahi terminated with the Prophet ﷺ. But the understanding of what he continues until today, as long as it conforms with what we call the early understanding of the Sahaba and the Tabi'un. Now, many issues in Islam were not discussed at that time and they remain open for discussion, but we don't know which until we study them. Problem with the modern day Muslims especially here in the U.S. and North America in general, is that everybody assumes that these points were never discussed and never resolved. So you have to be careful. Somebody asked the question that how come I don't find any discussion on this scientific issue in, in books. So I said, which books were you looking at? Is it in English books? As a, you know, the Islamic uh, heritage of knowledge is not in English books. It's a new phenomenon, English, for the Muslim Ummah. All of these issues have been already discussed in Arabic books, in Persian books, and in books in Urdu. I don't know those languages. How are you learning Islam if you don't know these languages? At least Arabic. It's not written in English. So, well, when you want to become a scholar of Islam and you don't want to learn Arabic, Islam That ain't happening. It's not possible for you to understand Islam if you don't know Arabic because you're going to have to read the Quran. Translation doesn't catch it. Everything for the scholar is lost in translation. Everything, and I mean everything. Right? Now you say, well, only scholars can understand, yes. That says only someone who knows math and learn physics and calculus. Andrew Einstein, the same way. Well, the Sahabas, well, the Sahabas language is Arabic. And they knew the language of the Quran. They didn't have to go to school for that. It was there in their blood, it was in their culture. They lived it, they breathed it, they became it. Likewise, their students, and likewise, their students. We don't have that facility anymore, so we have to go through the mill and learn the tools by which we can understand what the Quran and Sunnah is saying. So, until you want to make that effort, I suggest you take your knowledge from others who know how to read that. So, that's blind folly, is it? Why is it blind folly? If you're not a mechanic and you know nothing about your car, and you say, no, let me do this myself. Good luck with that. That's another kind of, you know, piece of metal and, and wires put together. 
This is your salvation, this is your success in this world, and the world will happen. You're saying that you my son. So based on my understanding, I think Muslims should have this thing. No. That is wrong, period. Now, that doesn't mean to say you don't read books about Islam in English. We're not saying that. You can read any book under the sun in any language you might get. That's what we're all about. That's how the civilization goes. But in order for you to have a formed opinion that counts as an opinion about any issue, you need some qualifications, certification, some guarantee from others with you around you that if this person has an opinion, that opinion should be listened to and respected. That comes from the community. That's a hobby. That's a hobby. The, the, the companion of the Prophet went to uh, a village after the Prophet. Many years, 20, 30 years, a, a village where there were, mashallah, a good amount of Muslims. He went to the masjid and uh, they said that, uh, you know, you are the Sahabi of the Prophet. Please lead the congregation. Few people. So he asked, how many people come? The many people come. So I'm not leading. But you're a Sahabi. You know me to be a Sahabi. They won't know me to be a Sahabi. And in their eyes, I'll be a foreigner. I'll be a newcomer. I'll be a stranger. So I'm not leading. You understand? You preserve Islam before you preserve your nafs. It's not about the nafs. I'm a Sahabi. I'm going to lead. I have the prerogative. No. This is about their understanding of Islam. They don't know me from Adam. I'm a stranger. I'm a traveler. You know me because of the reason you know me. But when 50 other people come for Salat, they won't know me. I'm unfamiliar to them. So before I start to lead you, I need to live here for three days. And then people know me. And then they can say, okay, he's a Sahabi, he may lead. You understand? If you are unknown in the community of scholars, you cannot have an opinion that is bound to influence and affect the rest of the Ummah. That is unprofessional. It is unscientific and it is not allowed. There is a condition of hadith that when you want to take a hadith from somewhere, the ulama, the scholars of hadith, they have a rule. That is, if the narrator of the hadith is unknown, that hadith is rejected. The hadith is rejected. No other person. Unknown is mashur. Why did they have this? Because it is quite possible that somebody you don't know may not be a person that you can trust. So being known has a value, where being unknown has no value. So when you're not known in the community of people who are experts and professionals in that community, it is better to avoid the unknown, even as common sense. Rather than say, everybody should have an opinion. So khatun nabiyin means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave wahi to Rasul sallallahu and it terminated with him. Khatim al-Nabi means that the Sahaba understood wahi from him directly. Khatim al-Nabi means that we cannot revisit wahi. Wahi that is conclusive. We can't revisit that in the name of progress and adaptation and flowing with the times, going with the times. That which has already been conclusively decided, we won't change. We can't because that will mean that we are also now uh, saying that we have access to God's will. That we also, Nabi, were also a prophet. We don't say that, we don't do that. So you will err on the side of conservatism and say, it is best for us because we don't know what is God's will on this issue and on this issue and on this issue. If the Quran and Sunnah has already expressed God's will, we will follow God's will as proven by the story of the Prophet ﷺ marrying the divorced wife of his adopted son 
even though it was wrong in society, Allah said, marry her. Right? This is Khatum al-Nabi, this is Khatum al-Nabuwa. And this is how Muslims must resolve their tensions of today, that uh, differentiate between what is conclusive and what is not conclusive. That which is conclusive you don't touch. It's a done deal. It's a closed door. That which is inconclusive you may still discuss and debate and argue and legislate or not legislate. That will become a policy issue, not an issue of your faith. And that's how you separate the two. But nobody has the prerogative to say that I believe God wants us to do this. Neither Abu Bakr, nor Umar, nor Uthman, nor Ali. They never claimed it, and that's why they were successful. Today, Muslims want to claim this is God's will, but God's will is expressed in every human being. Right. Have you heard the news lately? That God's will is expressed by all these people who are perpetrating whatever they're doing in the name of goodness and welfare for the people at large, and you have uh, criminals and people who are supposed to deal with criminals, they become criminals and people who are uh, causing bloodshed all over the world and you're saying God's will is expressed in every human being. Give me a break. And give yourselves a break too. Right? Understand that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose one man to be the last prophet. Right? Understand that, appreciate it, acquiesce to it, submit to it, and then love him for that reason. That's Allah's fudl. That's Allah's rahmah on one man. In Islam, we follow one man. And that's the reason he did not have a successor who was a male. Right? No male successor for the Prophet. And even the daughters he had, three of them died before he left the world. And the fourth one died six months after he left the world. Right? There, there is no well, progeny that we can say was, was with the Prophet. People who say, let's follow Fatima, let's follow this uh, uh, Zainab, let's follow Umm Kulthum, and let's follow the uh, other uh, uh, daughter of the Prophet. Nobody would make that claim of nepotism and favoritism, and saying that we follow the Nabi and his uh, offspring. Allah kept it that way so that everybody who followed him, followed him because he is Rasulullah, not because he is the father of so-and-so and so-and-so. Tribalism was abolished. Nepotism was abolished. Favoritism was abolished through the institution of Khatan Nabuwa, so that the Ummah knows, wherever you are on the planet, you are going to follow one person, one human being. So Islam is the tradition of following a human being. Khatman Nabuwa is a human being. He's not abstract, philosophy. No, he's not a concept. He is a human being. You follow him, period. Unlike what people may suggest today, that we don't need to follow human beings anymore because they make mistakes. So in our Akhidah we say, Prophets don't make mistakes. They are infallible. Allah kept them infallible. And when there was a danger of them trying to appease society and community, Allah would save them from that and say, it doesn't matter what the community says, you're going to do this because you are the Nabi. And only they could do that because they, they, were, they were the only ones who had the stomach and the stamina resilience and the integrity to do so. Okay? Anyway, there's so much more to this ayah as people have written volumes and volumes on this ayah alone. Right. Again, to my point that if you want to read all of this, this will be available in Arabic, in Farsi, in Urdu, in Turkish, in other languages where the work of Islam has been done in Malaysian, in Indonesian, in Chinese. You'll follow because that's where the Muslim tradition was for the past millennium. 1300 centuries of work is found where Muslims lived for 1300 centuries. Okay? It's not found in English yet, but inshallah, we at Dara Qasim hope to develop people who can start writing in English. Also, we ask Allah for his tawfiq and to protect us from any uh, un Islamic understanding and gives us uh, the ability to please him 
in this world. Amin. Ya Rabbil Alamin. Wa sallallahu ta'ala. Wa sallallahu ta'ala. Wa sallallahu ta'ala. Wa sallallahu ta'ala.